This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. And I'm Jenny. And we're Hello. Talk- Hi. And Hi. we're going to be we're going to be talking about a novel by Arthur C. Clarke from 1979 called The Fountains of Paradise. This yes. is my first time reading it. Uh, Mine too. But Mine too. I, I don't think I learned anything new about uh, skyhooks or um, space what, elevators. What, space elevators. I knew everything because I read Arthur C. Clarke's articles about them. And I mm. guess I lived with with the aftermath of this novel. But I did learn a hell of a lot about Sri Lanka. Exactly. <laughs> Which is interesting, because I didn't expect that. I expected not to learn anything about Sri Lanka, uh, and to learn a lot about skyhooks and uh, uh, towers. But so a skyhook has no bottom attached to the Earth? I think that's the idea. And essentially, uh, it is, it, it's, it's done as... What's the right word for it? It's not skyhook. A space elevator? Space elevator, okay. So... The, the reason I think it's called a skyhook is because it, it has to be built from the bottom up <laughs> towards the earth, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't unspool it from the earth and go up. You have to uh, unspool it down. I think right. that's why it was always called a skyhook. Because if you're going to have a, uh, a one-way thing, <laughs> you don't want to be reeling in every time, right? So I don't, I don't think any of the proposed plans had it like as a literal hook going down fishing on the earth but that was the vi- visual image i had in my head prior to this novel at least hmm. uh but yeah it makes a lot more sense the way he's got it with multiple multiple uh threads and up elevators and down elevators it's actually i think my first space elevator book <laughs> it's it's the only one that i've read that talks about how it would be built but uh. i read uh the heinlein's Heinlein's novel uh, Friday starts at a space elevator, hmm. and um, it's briefly, you know, outlined as to what what it does, I guess. Uh, but yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. It, I'm not sure it's a novel though. This this book, other than the the Sri Lanka stuff, I mean, it feels like a novel, but I it was more like a series of this is how we would build a space elevator, but problems we need to foresee. Fiction yeah. is accounting of a of a real construction project. Yeah, and I kind of glossed over the parts about the space elevator. I just didn't care. I mean, I thought that the Sri Lankan part was much more interesting. Mm-hmm. So um, I ended up counting it for my around the world reading list because there was so much there about the history. And um, I guess Clark actually lived there. Oh yeah. So I didn't. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he's he's a. I know that. Oh yeah, he he was uh, always whenever you'd see him on satellite, he'd always be from phoning in from Colombo, and I, I always thought, what a weirdo, why does he live in Sri Lanka? Yeah, it was for the um, British government, right? I don't know, I don't know. Maybe he's trying I mean, to build a space elevator. <laughs> I, he's, I mean, it's not in the audiobook. Uh, there is an intro that's not in my book, the, a more modern intro that's not in my paper book, but it's not in the audiobook, but there's a bunch of acknowledgements and uh, uh, de- technical details about you know what's not real and what is real at the end of the, my paper book. Did you guys read uh, the paper books as well, or just 
just no, I read it. the I I listened to the audiobook. Oh, I list, I read the paper because I didn't have enough time to listen to the audio. Mm-hmm. Don't hate um, me. <laughs> no, 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 quite all right. Um, did you have a sources and acknowledgments section at the end? Let me look. Um, here. That really changes a lot of the things I was thinking. I was thinking, wow, that's oh. interesting. But yeah, because he talks he's about <laughs> he's changing things ra- quite radically. Well, yeah, because he had to move the location of Sri Lanka. I mean, he had to move the island <laughs> and double the size of the mountain. I remember right. that part. Right, right, and I, I thought, what a ripoff. Yeah. Um, I, th- I mean, he says for dramatic reasons, I have made three trifling changes <laughs> to the geography <laughs> of Ceylon. He's moved it five thousand mi- uh, kilometers, oh, eight hundred mi- uh, kilometers south, and he doubled the height of the the mountain. Mm-hmm. And he moved some other place um, uh, slightly and changed some names and 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 also doubled the no he he made it two thousand years ago instead of about nine hundred years ago yeah uh, for the for the ruins and I thought why did you do all that and I know the reason is once you start making the changes you you know if he moves the island to make it work. Uh, as a physics project, he can change anything, and so I, f- I feel like I have to go to Sri Lanka now and and see what's real and what isn't because yeah. uh, I feel kind of I I feel very ambivalent about the 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 novel portion of this book. I I really don't like that he's changed all these re- things. It it bothers me a lot. Well, and I think it's just he used it as the jumping off point for something that captured his imagination. I mean, I, c- I couldn't believe this was a real place. And when you see pictures mm-hmm. of it, and we'll, we'll post links to the pictures, you see the lion paws. Remember mm-hmm. that one part where they're describing how people, they would get to the top of the rock and then they'd have to walk through the lion's mouth and they'd turn away. And they're real. The paws are the only thing left, but that's still there. The frescoes are still there. I was just amazed that that it really existed. <laughs> I, I I can't I can't see any anything except you know when you look at the picture of the of the real place I can't see anything except for the the paws as ever having been there. I assume that there was a real lion's mouth there and I don't know mane and ears and all that stuff. But yeah, the paws are definitely striking. Yeah, it's, it's like it's uh, like what's that? Thing in Egypt, you know, it, it it lost its nose. Oh, this thing lost everything except for its paws. Yeah, but you can see how that would just kind of sink into you, and he'd start, you know, imagining what mm-hmm. it could have been or where it could go, and you know, it, it is science fiction, so it doesn't have to be all real. <laughs> no, I I think it's stuff on Earth. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's it's an alternate Earth, really. But I I, I think everything. Oh, other than that aspect of you know he had to i think he's just in love with sri lanka so much that he mm-hmm. couldn't not set it there even though you know he calls them trifling changes he's got to be winking when he says that because they're not trifling oh sure you know it's not like he's changing the name of, of uh, one real person and you know making it slightly whatever um but yeah the king kalidasa is based on a real king yeah the, the there's events that are yeah, and I think those are really interesting. It's it, Tam, you said you had trouble getting into the beginning, right? Yeah, I, I was listening in the car, and I, I wasn't sure which part was t- taking place in the past and which was in the present, and I got confused, so I got bored. Yeah. But then uh, the second time, I listened carefully at home, and I, I followed it better. 
Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's supposed to be a little bit ambivalent. Uh, I mean, not completely. If you do read the text, it's 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 fairly obvious that he's he's uh, the the actions are happening in the past. Are I thought they might be happening in the future, like some distant future. Yeah, I did too. And some of it still felt kind of future because yeah, they were yeah. talking about the the space probe that came through. I had a hard time figuring out where that really fit in the timeline. Mm-hmm. I thought it might just be past, present, and future. It, really yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when you get to that final, the final stuff where you know it turns in, into not a, not just not just a work of uh, engineering fiction, but also science fiction with with the coming for full circle with the the story of i guess the fictional island of how do we how do we pronounce the island's name Teprobany. Teprobany, right well the beginning there's this little Teprob- part that says you know the historic classical pronunciation is Teprobany, but most people say taprobane right <laughs> yeah it's it's from milton yeah so Par- paradise regained uh, I, I, it's Really interesting to me. This this reminds me why I like Arthur C. Clarke is it is full of ideas. I mean, there's a uh, five or six or seven, eight big big science fiction ideas in this book mm-hmm. that most authors would just you know they just do the one and they explore that and they move on to the next thing um, in the next novel. But this is this is jam packed full of stuff and it it kind of makes the characters uh, you don't really care about them that much. <laughs> They're kind of yeah. All like you know, they're like Arthur C. Clarke himself, very intelligent, um, bit uh, formal, <laughs> not very. Uh, so Joe, Joe Walton called him thin. Thin, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that sounds right. Well, not many women. We are we going to talk reporter. about that with you? Because I, I'd like to like to hear what she had to say based on her novel that we did not too long ago. Well, yeah, she just had a lot of criticism about the characters not having a lot of depth and about the idea that an entire planet would just throw religion out the window because one space probe said a religion was illogical was ridiculous. She had a hard time accepting that idea. Yeah, it seems a little bit unlikely. I think that might have been uh, wishful thinking on Clark's part. Yeah. I think those were the major critiques. What do you think, Tam? Yeah, she went into how there weren't that many female characters, except for like a mention of someone Morgan had an affair with, and the uh, female reporter was in it a little bit. Right. There's some line in her review that says, like, you know, people always criticize Heinlein for how he portrays women, but at least he put women in there. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they're basically just Heinlein in a dress, though. They're not yeah. very uh, human. Yeah. Or real, maybe. Well, and I think she kind of missed what I love about it in, like, it it really captures your imagination, I think, between the space elevator and this really unique place that actually exists. I mean, to me, that's the appeal. I don't really care that the science is thin or that, you know, the characters aren't really there because that's like what you said, Jesse. It's more of an idea book Mm -hmm. than a character book. I guess I I don't expect anything to have all of it. (laughs) He, he, you know, he's not you know, the master uh, storyteller in the way that other people are. But you mm-hmm. can't deny his his ability to to think interesting thoughts 
that are really science fictional. Very, I mean, this is a hard science fiction novel with a, a kind of a feel of a of a fantasy uh, element. I mean, it is the the one of those Clark's Laws things where you know uh, indistinguishable from magic um, because the the ability of the of the space probe that eventually comes along, right? Um, they're ma- almost magical, and yet. Um, it's also it's operating based on the fact that you can't go faster than the speed of light. Right. And, and I th- it's interesting. I, I think an important point about the religion issue, though, is that it's one thing to have people who are your same. I don't know. What, I don't know what you call what you call humanity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your same people group or whatever, um, being skeptical about religion. And obviously people have made different choices about religion, but that moment where a space probe enters your life is going to be a game changer, (laughs) especially if it's the first one. And so I think you pay more attention when, you know, it's like the world exploding or something. It's not the same thing as someone having a logical disagreement. Well, uh, I, I don't, uh, you know, Greg Marguerite used to say, uh, you can't reason someone into, uh, or reason someone out of something they haven't been reasoned into. <laughs> um, and I think that that is probably something to do with it. I, I, the way I was thinking about it is, uh, there is that quote at the beginning, um, uh, the very beginning of the novel is, uh, s- somebody named Sri Jawarla Nehru. Um, I assume that's someone related to, uh, the maybe Nehru is a common name. Anyways, um, it says politics and religion are obsolete. The time has come for science and spirituality. Uh, and you know this is taken from some sort of speech uh, in 1962. I would guess that you know if you look at Arthur C. Clarke's body of work, he is actually very much um, a person who is worshipful. Um, he's not worshipful. Of worshipful of religion he's worshipful of the universe itself and in you know if you look at a lot of his writings it almost seems like it's a spiritual yearning for uh an exploration of the universe it it, it, spiritualism is not what i mean but like it's a it's not a rational um uh we, we must go out there because it's it's a uh it's a economic benefit to humanity. That's not usually the way he goes for it. Uh, he hmm. will marshal those arguments, and he does in this book. There's a couple of spots where he, you know, says why big engineering projects are a good idea. But, you know, if you think of um, what's this classic, the nine billion names of God, this is a story in which the science of uh, and physics of the universe is. It takes second step to some, you know, monks in the top of a mountain who know better and use use science to get the spiritual job done. Right. Well, and he picks the idea back up right at the beginning of the second section, mm-hmm. um, where it starts with a Freud quote, which probably is a real quote mm-hmm. that talks about religion just being a stage in evolution, mm-hmm. and then it goes to an inaugural address at Brigham Young, but it would have postdated the book, so it, that's an imaginary one. Right, and right. then it, it it kind of goes more into the future as people are discussing how religion has diminished and um, as people learn differently, or and so I think that was kind of the idea that Joe pointed out too is that at that point in the book. 
it's more like we'd grown out of it. So it wasn't as difficult. Or maybe that was one of what the commenters said. Um, I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, uh, but, I mean, he's he's making the argument. And I think, you know, it's, it, it, it is the case that less people are religious uh, these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not significantly less. It's it's more like we're we're less enthusiastic about it and we take it less seriously except in times of crisis. And the people that are seem to be more drastically so. Well, At least yeah. around here. I don't know. <laughs> I you know, I I can't speak for I've never lived in the states, but Tam, what what's it like around you? People desperately uh religious? Um I don't really encounter that much. Yeah, I don't think too many people know about St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, yeah, I thought I think those are that was a a little fun section, right? Yeah, where the probe says this is here using symbolic logic of Bertrand Russell. Here's all the things that are wrong with that argument, <laughs> all the arguments that he makes, and uh, they are all terrible arguments if you do study them. They're, you know, uh, they're not they're not lo- logically consistent. But. I think I've read him, so I can't speak to that. But I think what was missing for me in the Clark mm-hmm. is it would seem that for a society that was very motivated by religion, that having such a significant change would have caused a bigger crisis than it seemed to in the book. Um, I mean, if you realign your whole purpose, I don't know. It seems like that would be very traumatic. But the book's just kind of, I think that's kind of one of her critiques, right? It's people just kind of were like, hmm, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, and, and now a space probe's here. Mm, all right, we'll accept that. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't we don't see it from a, uh, a, you know, a whole bunch of view characters' viewpoints. It's That's true. It's, uh, he, he's not that kind of writer, I don't think, but... Uh, it it is. I mean, it doesn't really fit with the book, other than to say, um, you know, it is. <laughs> there's a reason you need to build this thing, not just in the same way that all the people who don't understand what satellites are, you know, how much they improve their lives and how useful they are, and how you know, generally technology is the driving force of uh, humanity's at least becoming more comfortable and living longer. Uh, for for all those people, you know, there are unseen benefits to uh, basic scientific research and and giant engineering projects like building dams. Just like in the beginning of the novel, and the I guess uh, as comes to the end of the novel, the 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 king is you know lording it over his his people on this giant engineering project they built hmm. uh, that brings uh, year-round water uh, from the seasonal monsoon. It's something you do so that the entire society is improved. But it also is a beautiful thing. And, you know, that, that the fountains of paradise, not just, you know, uh, Hoover Dam. Although people do go to Hoover Dam to look at it because it's pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 there is that point in the book where uh, one scientist is arguing with another scientist about, you know, why big engineering projects are a good idea. And, and you know he's like they're set. And one guy sets the ball down, the other guy knocks it away, right? just so that Clark can make his points. And the one is uh, about all the all the major city attractions, like uh, 
in the Sydney Opera House, how, how much it has uh, defined the city, right? When you think of Sydney, you think mm-hmm. of maybe the Sydney Opera House, and there's a bridge that I don't know the name of. <laughs> I guess that's not quite as definitional. But uh, you think of the Sydney Opera House and how that is a beacon to people to come visit Sydney. And, the Eiffel Tower. Or the Eiffel Tower or, uh, you know, whatever, thousands, Empire State Building, all of these giant engineering projects that look like they're going to have a major expense and can never be paid for. Uh, maybe the Burj Khalifa, maybe the example that it's eventually going to pay off really well, but not not millions of people are going to visit it yet, I don't think. The what? <laughs> but I'd like to. Uh, that's the tallest building in the world. It's in... Oh. It's in uh, United Arab Emirates. Mm-hmm. I guess I guess Tam's not off to see it yet. Luke's been there. It's a pretty it's a pretty impressive building. Oh, it it was in Mission Impossible Four. If you haven't seen it, yeah, that it's I a, haven't seen it. Oh well, you get you get a good sense of what it how big it is. Um, I think they actually refer to uh, the space elevator as the Eiffel Tower upside down, stretched out. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and it for the same reasons, right? Like the Eiffel Tower was a tourist attraction. That was the the point of it being built uh, for the, uh, the World's Fair, and there, it was intended to come down. But it became such a a beacon for the city. We can't really think of Paris without it anymore, right? Oh. The, the Paris of there's, there's no antenna on the top or something. Uh there is an antenna on the top, but. Uh, you know, they wanted to pull it down not because it had an antenna on. You know, they needed the antenna for transmission of anything. This is in the late 19th century. There's an antenna on it now, but that's uh, not the, that's not the point of it, right? It's just a it's a structure. It's uh it's it's in a way it's like um it's like Clark is saying this is what we're meant to do. Hmm. Right? We're not meant to do anything, but if we were meant to do anything, it's to use our brains to make awesome things. And to for the universe get off of the earth before it turns the sun turns cold. Right. There's this point. It's in section one. I'll just read a little bit of it. Um, it's when Morgan and Raja Shinje, <laughs> however you say his name, they're um, talking about space age exploration and that kind of thing. It says the space age is almost 200 years old. Blah blah blah. How we've done all these things. Um, though it took a little longer than the optimists predicted, it is now obvious that the conquest of the air was only a modest prelude to the conquest of space. I read this page (laughs) and I got really depressed because back in the seventies, it was just so obvious that that's what we would continue to do, right? Mm -hmm. We would explore space. We would possibly dominate space, move to space, um, travel in space, and with the way at least the NASA program is going, mm. it feels less likely, at least at this point. So I was just thinking about the um, those assumptions. You kind of think that you'll continue to move forward when the reality of it is that it's really expensive to do that, and sometimes yeah. you don't just keep moving forward. Well, I, you know, I, I think. I'm not sure how uh, much of an internationalist uh, Clark is, or Clark was, I should say. I would guess a fairly big one, because he he's happy, you know, that the Russians are doing what they're doing at the time, and uh, he's he's hopeful that the Americans are going to keep going. And um, 
the Chinese are going at it. They're going up into space. The the Indians are doing it. The Japanese are still doing it. The Europeans are still foreign. And and it isn't like the United States isn't doing anything. I mean, uh, I'd like to have had Terp Kristen on here with us. I know. But apparently she's off putting rockets into space. So, uh, or satellites or something, right? So it's not like it's gone, but there seems to be uh, less human focus. We're, I don't think we're having a uh, uh, moon base anytime soon uh, from the United States. But uh, I wouldn't be that shocked if the Chinese were there in 10 years. Mm-hmm. But it does kind of change the cultural focus, I guess. When we prize innovation and moving forward, it tends to be more about you know, the computers and, and stuff people can use in their daily life rather mm-hmm. than this idea of just exploration and creativity that I think Clark so clearly values himself. Yeah. Oh, wow. We're not racing against the Russians anymore to get on the moon. Yeah, I guess we need a little competition, huh? <laughs> Maybe. Actually, half the science that he quoted in his afterword is based on Russian science, this idea mm-hmm. of a space elevator, Russian engineering that had come out in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. in fact, the, the first, the first, it's not him, right? Uh, Clark, Clark did he was uh, a part of it uh, in the idea of a uh, space elevator, but he, he wasn't the first person to come up with the idea. And uh, it seems like a lot of people were coming up with it independently, just people yeah. who are, you know. So if if we go to other planets with uh, human-like creatures on them, they're going to come up with these ideas as well. Yeah, and um, someone had even written about the this idea of the circular... Mm-hmm. space around the earth that you would get to and then use as a replacement for or an enhancement and increase i guess of space to live and work yeah mm-hmm. well i mean jerry there's a guy named jerry o'neill who uh thought that we needed to build space stations for the surplus population of the earth because uh, he was a good Catholic and needed to uh, <laughs> accommodate all the human beings who are giving birth. But if you look at uh, Earth's real estate, we're still not completely uh, filling up every nook and cranny down here. So that's not a good, that's not a good uh, real reason we need to go to outer space. I think the argument he's trying to make in this book, if there's an argument, it is that um, we ought to do things that we can do. Mm-hmm. And if we don't do that, it is because we are um, we are animalistic almost. It, you know, it's what makes us different is that we're capable of conceiving such wonderful, amazing projects. And what, you know, how much it costs is not so important as anything else it's we we ought to do what we can do and if you don't think that way um what you end up doing is just being satisfied with everything you've got so um you know (laughs) you look forward to the new iphone but you don't care that uh the reason it works is because of all the uh all the great innovations of other people, right? right. Uh, who are, who aren't just waiting for the iPhone? They're researching amazing things and miniaturizing and 
coming up with really cool ideas and trying to make them happen. Jesse, have you read um, Leviathan Wakes? No. Okay. It's well, a new, I know. Uh, new book, right? Yeah, Tama and I have both read it for a book club thing, and it's funny because where the Fountains of Paradise ends and that kind of epilogue where people have started moving to the asteroids and, you know, mm-hmm. they've started to move out and populate these other places. That's kind of where Leviathan Wakes is set. And people still live on the Earth, but they also live on Mars and the asteroid belt. And it was a kind of a fun little tie-in in my head since I just finished that other book. Mm-hmm. But they talk about, like, the challenges, of course, of feeding people where you you can't have pastures and you can't grow things as easily. So what do you eat? And um, how does the change in gravity change how people's body shapes are and that kind of thing. So it really gets more into the just kind of daily life challenges that you would see. So it was just kind of interesting connection. Mm -hmm. People have to eat fungus when they're in space. Fungus is easy to grow. I don't, I, I, I don't, you know, I think that, that is, I mean, that's sort of something that's been explored all throughout the 80s. There was a really, a book that I really, really loved uh, when I read it, because I just picked up some book at random, you know, out of the bookstore, and I thought, oh, this is so cool. Now, if I went back and read, read it now, I'd probably see a million problems with it. Uh, see if I can remember the title. It was it was by John Maddox Roberts and someone else. Uh, I think it was Islands in Space or something like that. It was a, It's basically about asteroid mining. And it's about a guy on Earth who's driving around in his flying Porsche and uh, decides to emigrate to the uh, asteroid belt and why he's doing that. And uh, when he gets there, he experiences the culture there and zero gravity and there's a plot and stuff like that. But um, the thing is, is (laughs) that sort of uh, idea is not, I think, where Clark is going. If you think of what that probe is about, right, it's a person eventually, right? And we don't like to think of ourselves as we can imagine that uh, I was listening to Geek's Guide, the Galaxy podcast, and they were talking about how Star Trek is really holding us back in a certain sense of what we can really do in science fiction because we're imagining a spaceship like a sea ship with a crew of people traveling between the stars at faster than light speeds. That's not going to happen. We don't like to think that. We like to think, oh, one day, one day we'll find. One. No, it's not going to happen. There's no evidence that we can go faster than light. No matter what, uh, you know, particles we discover, we're, we don't seem to have that ability anytime. Hey, we just found the God particle. Right. So even if you know, it still doesn't. You know, nothing we know about physics says we can go faster than light at this point. So that being said. Uh, facing the harsh reality. You know, it's just like you're going to die soon <laughs> in the next 70 years or so, or me in the next 30 years or so. <laughs> um, that harsh reality, facing that harsh reality means uh, you got to start thinking, well, can we empathize with a character who isn't a human being? Uh, and I think that the the character of that, that space probe it actually changes its name between trips, right? Yeah. Um, and that it's develop it's developing a sense of humor and all of that. I mean, that's that's along the lines I think that Arthur C. Clarke is going. He he never left the Earth himself, but 
there, there's a line uh, in the, the afterward, I, or maybe it's in the beginning of the book, uh, of the audiobook, I can't remember, um, in which Clark says he's, he, he got the greatest compliment about uh, the movie 2001 when uh, a cosmonaut who saw it told him, uh, I've been to space twice now. Right, a guy who's actually been to space telling him that 2001 was uh, like space. Uh, it makes me think, cool, I've been to space too because I've seen 2001, and it is—it sure does feel like space, doesn't it? Hmm. Now he might have been exaggerating a bit. I don't know, uh, but I think that I don't personally have to go to Mars uh, to experience the wonder of seeing the images of our robots going there. And it is a harsh truth uh, that I'm not, not going to be going to Alpha Centauri any, anytime soon. But uh, if we can build a space probe to do, to do that in 2000 years of, uh, you know, rocket propel propulsion or whatever technology we can come up with, I still think that's a good thing. And it, it's, it sounds like, a, you know, one day we will build a t temple in Babylon and, and the Messiah will return sort of thing, doesn't it? Right? It doesn't sound logical. Hmm. It sounds spiritual, almost. And I'm basically as far away from a spiritual person as you can get. I, I really liked that very end, though, where you hear from the star, I guess he changes his name to Star Homer. Mm -hmm. The Star Homer's perspective, because that's the point where... He lives in the stars. Earth has an ice age, and he points out that they have the science. They've developed the science mm -hmm. in order to fight it. They could have just fought it off like the people on Mars were doing, but they didn't. And instead, they you know, left the planet to go live these other places. He's also talking about how the children would um, challenge each other, and they'd get frostbite even mm -hmm. though they they didn't have the skills to really grow their limbs and they'd have to have the help of the adults. Mm -hmm. I mean, just little things like that. Like mm -hmm. the Yeah, they they don't sound like human beings anymore, do they? No. No. Cuz their science knowledge has grown so much that they can actually alter things around them intentionally and not necessarily just for bad, which we've yeah. figured out pretty well. But um yeah, I thought that was really interesting, but he has this perspective. It's like he's not communicating with them because if he figured this out, why wouldn't he have told them, Hey, look, you already have the science fix that. <laughs> he's just kind of a, an observer. He's just a religious advisor. Well, yeah. he, he talks about the, um, uh, the probe thing talks about, uh, the steps of different cultures he's visited or different, uh, planets full of intelligent creatures, you know, the steps up the ladder of, uh, not evolution, but development. And uh, I, I presume that we, we're looking at the people who are on that, that next cusp of the next step uh, in that case when he returns to the, the solar system and finds, finds a whole bunch of, you know, well-developed, uh, a, a well-developed solar uh, society, a civilization. And it's, it's, it, it is, that's, what I think Clark is really cool at is 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 he is he has done the the breaking the ground. I, th I think he's way ahead of you know people who are still talking about uh, you know Starship Enterprise style science fiction, and that is also in a lot of his other works. You know, um, 
on the Wikipedia entry for Fountains of Paradise, it talks about all the all the ideas that are in this um, major themes and uh, different sim- similarities with other novels that he's written. Uh, apparently, uh, the Last Theorem, with co-written with Clark, also uh, with Pole, also has a space elevator in it. Um, I I didn't read that one. That it's a lot longer than this. Um, the audiobooks are around here somewhere, but the the uh, the thing is is he is way ahead. I think still of a lot of other science fiction writers, and that's why it's still important to read Clark. But if you have you guys read The City and the Stars, no. Okay, mm-hmm. so you know, well, that's a really amazing book. You should read that book. Um, it's about people who live on the Earth in the distant future, and uh, our civilization is so far in the past that they don't even remember us. Uh, it's not quite like the sun has expanded to uh, a red giant size, but it certainly uh, isn't putting out as much good light as it used to. And uh, there's a city that lives on the Earth, um, and it has citizens that are like us, but they are all generated. They're computer-generated, kind of, recombined, um, and they're born as adults. And it's, it's like they're people, but they don't have childhoods and they don't have um, they don't have life's lives like we do. Hmm. And it is it's like a it is a one of those post human things that people who I don't know. I get the sense the post human people are are not talking about Clark, they're talking about something else. But it's kind of a post human story that is not uh, off putting. I, I find a lot of the posthuman talk very off-putting. It, this is not very off-putting, and you know, also think of uh, Childhood's End, right? Yeah, I've read that one. Yeah, that's that's the I one. I haven't read it. Oh, you got to read Childhood's End. That's, yeah. that's the one they make kids read in school, uh, like Fahrenheit four five one, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a great book, um, uh, and it's got a good it's got a good it's got a really good plot. This this book not so much. It has some really good stuff in it, but it's not a great plot. Um, that book has a really good plot, as mm-hmm. well as uh, being a really cool story. Jesse, let's get back to something sorry, you said, sorry. If, yeah, sure, if you don't it. mind. No, no, no. Um, you said that Clark is really important to read during the 70s or and 50s, I guess, because of how forward-thinking he was. I still so, think he is. Okay, well, who who is writing now do you think is doing the same thing for our generation? Uh, Ted Chiang. Um, I think Charles Strauss. If there was a Charles Strauss book I read last year or the year before, um, in which he had uh, the main character was a robot, and uh, all humans had been uh, wiped out a long time ago in some disease, and they're all the children of of humans. Um, Ted Chiang seems to be doing real good science fiction in the same way that. You know, they used to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't say that everybody's terrible, but there's a lot of derivative stuff. It's just, you know, it's been so long since that book is in print. Like Leviathan Wakes, it sounds to me like it's something that I could have read in the 80s. I don't. Yeah, I'm not. I wasn't really. It, it's really mostly like a pulp uh, story. Yeah, yeah, it's I more think about. The science the... is very small part of it. Yeah. It's a series, too, right? And yeah, I think, like I, think I think anything with this. 
with a sequel, pretty much, I mean, it's not completely true, but it pretty much is not about science fiction. It's just a science fiction setting. Um, in the same way that, you know, uh, that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy most recent episode, really good listen, because there's a really good discussion of of Star Trek at the end and why it's good and why it's bad um, and what makes it good and what makes it bad. And, you know, the original series is, it's kind of a science fiction series, kind of a fantasy series. Uh, Next Generation has some really good episodes, but after that, they don't focus so much on the science and the ideas as much as they focus on character and plot, war and, you know, uh, whatever Voyager was about, I don't know what Voyager was about. Enterprise, it's it's not really it's it's about action or something. It's yeah, the problem and each episode with, continues into the next one. Right. So the the new Star Trek movie that came out a couple of years ago, right? Uh, no science in that, as far as I can tell. Uh, not really about ideas. It's about hey, isn't it fun to spend time with these old characters again? And yeah, it's fun to spend time with the characters. But I didn't watch the show for the characters. All the characters are fine. Um, I liked it because it had cool ideas every week. I mean, there is a trend now of near near future science fiction with uh, Alistair Reynolds and Kim Stanley Robinson and uh, David Brin. They all just Kim put Stanley Robinson's pretty pretty cool. Yeah, I, I mean, Red, Red Mars is definitely a continuation of, of this book. It has a space elevator, hmm. and uh, Mar- Mars is being terraformed. And, it, uh, it it is it is the the case I think that ideas in science fiction build upon one another, but there's also all the ones that sort of they just uh, they're like parasites, not not in the derogatory sense, in the actual sense. They they parasitize the the ideas. They don't expand them. They don't build upon. They just you know suck suck off the ideas and say, oh that's cool. I'll set a story with a with a. Uh, uh, you know, skyhook in it or whatever. Well, and I think that's why, I'm not sure which thing happened first, but there was that kind of call to arms by Neil Stevenson about we need more actual up-to-date science in science fiction. And then NASA started that program where writers could pair with scientists from NASA to learn more about the actual thing. So I think that there's kind of this underlying sense that people have gone away from that. I think they are just continuing to use the old ideas because it's still feeding their imagination, but there's so much more that they could do. Yeah. I, I, I know that some people say, you know, what's a good book I can buy right now to, to get my kid interested in, in science fiction or something like that. And I say, you know, go back to Clark. Go back. To, <laughs> why do you have to buy a new book? Why does it have to be a new book? In fact, um, if it is, if science fiction is a building upon, um, you, that's the cool thing about living in the 21st century, looking back at the 20th and 19th century. You can say, oh, these are the these were the stepping stones uh, to where we are now. Uh, to what we can understand now. And I'm not sure that uh, we can look out and say, oh, this is definitely the stepping stone here in this book. I know that Ted Chang is writing great stuff, but I, I don't know which ones of his things are the, the stepping stones exactly. Sure. Um, I, try, I try to find something with a balance of both, like a good story and 
good uh, science. I think it's rare to have both of those uh, well done. Yeah, I yeah. think you're right. It is it is very rare. I mean, uh, I think Jenny, you like uh, you like um, William Gibson, right? Um, I you, think the that older the only, stuff. Mostly. I I think I've only <laughs> read one good book by him. I you know I I I think he's. He, he's written lots of great scenes and lots of great this, and, but I, I think he's only batted it out of the park one, the one time, you know? Yeah, my um, favorite of his is actually, I think, his first stuff, the Sprawl trilogy. Mm-hmm. That's what I go back to and reread, sure. not not his more recent stuff. I, it's funny, Tam, I think I agree with you because um, my favorite science fiction novel I've probably read this year is probably Leviathan, not Leviathan Wakes. What is the, oh, Embassy Town. Hmm. Um, but it's very, very much just an idea book about mm-hmm. language more than anything else. It's, it has very little science in it, um, but it's really fascinating about this alien race that can't communicate because of how they hear and see language until they figure out that if you have genetically engineered twins that uh, speak at the same time, that you can almost replicate their language. Anyway, it was it was really interesting, but it was pure ideas. Yeah, it sounds cool. Yeah, it's trying uh, my, my evil. I've not read uh, much by him. Well, and everything he writes is different. Yeah, I, I like that they're not all series too. I I I remember Luke's review of City and the City and the City, and that sounded pretty cool. Yeah, I've read that one too, but it's completely different. <laughs> kind of quasi fantasy or something, right? Yeah, like simultaneous alternate realities. But in their heads. <laughs> yeah, we need we need people reading the current stuff to say garbage, garbage, garbage. Hey, check this one out. Right? Yeah. Um. But I I I want I want somebody to do that for me. And <laughs> say you gotta do this first because if they don't, I'm not as enthusiastic. Right. And then between you and Joe Walton, I can have people telling me what's worth reading from the past. So I don't waste my time that direction either. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's why, that's why I think it's a good idea to have diverse opinions. Um, as long as they're, you know, uh, you know, genuinely informed ones. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's 2312 definitely has a lot of, um, science about, colonizing um, Mercury and Venus and somewhere out the moons of Jupiter. But uh, the story might be uh, too slow for some people. So that's, that's where the balance is in the science direction. Mm-hmm. But he's, maybe, he's, maybe a, that's, he's a good character writer too. He writes pretty good characters. Oh, maybe, maybe you would like stuff that. I've read. Yeah. Um, I, I'm thinking about it. I was thinking about 2312 and, um, I need it's to hear some long, more though. reviews. I need to hear, yeah, I'm, I'm a sh- I like this book is like just under 300 pages, right? Nice and, nice mm-hmm. and thin and jam packed full of ideas. <laughs> I finally got the, um, the Playboy, uh, versions of, uh, the serializations. And let me see if I can find the pictures and all up. Oh, yeah. Wow. Cool. Oh, I think you put out a record version too, and that comes with some drawings. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, that that uh, old, it's mentioned in the intro. Drawn by um, Buck Mas- Master Buckminster Fuller writes Fuller. the essay on the back, yeah. I, I think he did the drawings, too. Cool. The pictures in the illustrated playbook I'll put up in the link, and it's uh, it's very cool. It's, it's 
it's uh, very Indian, or I guess Sri Lankan. I don't know enough about Sri Lanka. I think that's that's the big takeaway. <laughs> it sounds like, um, you know, I was always wondering, why does he live in Sri Lanka? I just, I don't get it. It's so inconvenient for everything, right? I was actually just Googling that, and I found an interesting article that's just about that. Mm-hmm. So I'll we can link to that. Cool. Um, I th- it sounds like he originally located there so that he could go scuba diving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he just but stayed. But is scuba diving really that interesting? I mean, you want to sp- spend your whole life scuba diving? I guess. Well, apparently he discovered an underwater temple ruins or something. Mm. Uh, yeah, so he must have done it enough where he really found some things. Hmm. Was he into, like, Eastern spiritualism? I mean, I know he was an atheist. Uh, I think uh, it's, from the this book, at least, we can tell, you know, he he was very well acquainted with them. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, the the monks, etc. I mean, he wrote a lot about religion. For a guy who was not into religion, he was... It's yes, I was going to say, for referring to Milton, seems like mm. a, a typical atheist wouldn't do that. Uh, well, Milton is a is literature, though, right? <laughs> that's the way yeah. we look at it. It's not. It's it, and in fact, that's the way it was. That's what it was to begin with. It's not. I mean, people <laughs> people sometimes think you know Dante's Inferno is a uh, a description of hell, but it's just his description of hell, and he's not like a religious figure. Right, and knowing Milton's just being well read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have yet to read Milton, sadly, but but it's all about like God and right. Uh, it's about the it's about Lucifer and his fall from heaven and uh, better to, better to reign down there than to uh, <laughs> uh, serve in heaven, right? I guess it's it's a it's drama. I don't think it's a it, it, it's not so much a religious thing. The language of it's a little bit rough, but <laughs> have you read it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I've read all of it. I remember having to study it in school. I took two semesters of English Lit in college. Cool. That's the extent of my <laughs> expertise there. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, I actually had two books come in from from uh, Brilliance that were by Clark and. The reason I picked this one, The Fountains of Paradise, is I hadn't read it before. The other one was A Fall of Moon Dust, which I believe I had read a long time ago. Is that a novel? Yeah, it's a novel, about the same length. And I think so I heard the BBC player. audio version of it. Yeah. Audio drama. I've definitely heard that. That's another uh, rescue story, too. Yeah, and for some reason I think he wrote a an underwater book as well, but... Um, one of my favorite, speaking of scuba diving, one of my favorite uh, authors as a kid uh, was a Canadian author. Um, she's, I remember the name of the book perfectly. I read it, I don't know, grade four or grade five, something like that. It was a guy called Crisis. No, that that's the one on the moon. It's one called Crisis on Con Shelf 10, I think. Hmm. Uh, so, and you almost never see her books anymore. Uh, what is Monica Hughes? You either read a, a Monica Hughes? No, I don't think so. Uh, let's see. 
let's see. It's, there's a Goodreads on it. I'll send you the link. There it is. Uh, while visiting Conchelf 10... Oh, no, it is underwater. Uh, under An underwater colony on Earth, a young moon boy becomes involved in the dissident Gilmen, whose plans threaten the world. <laughs> oh, so it's like juvenile? It's uh, yeah. It was uh, she, she, all her stuff was sort of YA, uh, young young characters. Um, <laughs> best book ever, somebody says. <laughs> I I I. That's what I thought at the time. I think. And that's uh, I I guess I wasn't really thinking of um, science fiction as much as cool living under the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't know if we need to live under the ocean, but I think it's cool, and I think it'd be cool if people did that. And movies like The Abyss uh, uh, make it seem almost, you know, possible. I, th- I think I, I think I read a Tom Swift where uh, he's underwater, and there's like I guess there's an Atlantis civilization that he interacts with. Yeah, that that sounds like uh, Aquaman and stuff too, right? Or what's right. the other with the Marvel vision of Aquaman? I can't remember. I think he has black hair. Oh, Submariner? The Submariner, right. One of the, I'm I'm looking for the list, one of the novellas or the novelettes that was nominated for Hugo this year um, is about humanity moving under the ocean to survive an ice age. (laughs) Yeah, uh, well, that's mentioned in this book, right? Yeah, I'm trying to find it. It was kind of interesting to read. Well, in Blue Remembered Earth by Alistair Reynolds, I think there's a part that's underwater, and they have lots. No, of I've not read a single Alistair Reynolds. I think I, I think uh, other than a short story, um, I think part of it is because he is he does series, right? And I'm just not a series guy. You can read like uh, the Prefect. That's standalone. Is that and, that? and that's more of like a cop uh, story. Is it good? Yeah, I. That, that's the first book I read of his, and I kept reading books after that. Okay. Aha, it's called Ray of Light by Brad Torgerson. That's the one about the underwater. Uh-huh. It's a kind of interesting one. Brad Torgerson. Hmm. Alien Sun Mirror. Ray of Light. Alien Sun Mirror blocked Deepwater Living Daughter Glimmer Club surface discovery. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a story summary? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Alien Sun Mirror blocked <laughs> Water living daughter glimmer club. So yeah, well, the ice age is caused by aliens. I, f- I forgot uh, about that part of it. <laughs> are they? Yeah, they're on Mars in uh, in this book. They're they're de-icing the Earth, right, with giant right. space mirrors. <laughs> yep. Uh, it, it's almost like there's a mini version of of this book inside this book uh, with the, that Mars tangent, mm-hmm. where they talk about how how they're going to build one on Mars. Uh, they're going to use uh, Demos as the as the anchor and use Phobos to get a uh, a view. I thought that was really cool. Imagine yeah. imagine going up and just hovering. Uh, I mean, see, I think uh, you know. I was reading, uh, maybe I was listening to that podcast, and they were saying, "Is uh, what I like about John Scalzi?" Somebody said was uh, he writes so that anyone can understand it. And I was thinking, damn, Clark, you didn't make it hard enough for me in this book because I understood everything, even, you know, every single little thing. So, like, one at one point, you know, there's there's the the crisis on the on the um, the tower. What's, what's 
why am I always forgetting the space the space elevator? Okay, there's the crate <laughs> they can't get to it, right? And the people are stuck there. Yeah, that took a long time. Yeah, that, that is a, it's not a perfect book, but mm-hmm. in that in that section, um, they're saying, well, we can't just spend a, send a spaceship to it, and I said, of course you can't. But I knew that other people would say, why not? And they, he doesn't explain it. I like that he didn't explain it, right? And the you guys know why, right? I assume you you know why. I hope. No, because uh, I don't know. because it's where the atmosphere is, right? Is that the reason? Oh no, no, no! It's because it uh, would run into it. <laughs> because um, <laughs> if you're above the Earth, right, in a spaceship, and you come to a relativistic stop with it, uh, you're no longer in orbit. You're falling. It'd be, it's like an airplane, right? An airplane high in the sky that's holding still is not possible. Unless so get a, get a Harrier jet. Exactly right. You need a spaceship that can both right. put thrust down and in the other direction and do it for a long period of time. And we don't build them that way because they're too expensive. And I just like that he didn't explain that. I wanted more of that. But I know that a lot of people, when they read science fiction, or they don't read science fiction because... It is too hard. I want it to be hard. I wanted to. I thought I wasn't challenged enough by this book because I knew it all. Because I'd lived in a world in which uh, this book existed before I'd read it. Uh, not before I'd read it, but uh, it, it existed before I read it today. If if that makes any sense. Well, you could go back and read the original science it was based on and see if you understand that. <laughs> Oh, no, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the tensile strength, strength stuff, I don't need the raw numbers. What I need is the ideas, and I, I understood the idea well enough, you know. It's like um, bullets that are not in motion are falling, right? They're not, they don't hover. Hmm. Um, but uh, the idea that I think was so cool was when they are talking, I mean, I think this is the reason why he wanted to do that little section, that little divergence to Mars was if they built one on Mars, um, the fact that the, that Phobos would interfere with the, with the space elevator there would not be a bug, but a feature, right? Yeah. (laughs) It'd be a major feature. Can you imagine having a planet, planetoid sized object coming mere feet away from you? That'd be so cool. Right, you're like sitting in a view window, and you see this moon approaching you, and it comes, and it comes, and it comes, and then you can feel the gravity off of it. Imagine that. Yeah, wouldn't the gravity like uh, suck it into it or something? Oh, it's very mi- it's very small gravity because it's it's a okay. very small moon. But you know, we don't, and it's mentioned in this book as well. We don't experience anything in between one G. And zero Gs uh, when you're in uh, space going up or coming down. You only experience either high G from acceleration or zero G from achieving your uh, orbit. But there's no gradation. There isn't there except on the space elevator, right? They say uh, at the at the midway point, which isn't really midway, they get one sixth G. And the reason is because that's how far away the Earth is. Uh, that's the, the appropriate uh, gravity for that distance. Um, and the fact, I mean, the whole, the whole structure works because of that. It's, it's, 
it's actually tethered in two positions. One, it's tethered on the Earth, and the other, it's tethered in space. Very, very cool. But yet, high winds on Earth can be a problem. Yeah, there were a few things that, like, to uh, me, yeah. We don't have weather control, so we're not building this anytime soon, right? Right. Well, remember when, I think it's his nephew, Morgan's nephew, you know, waits for something to come back, like they wiggle the thread or something, and he's like, well, you would see the reflection of that in 10 hours, because that's how long it takes for something to travel yeah. and come back. But you want to know the science that really tripped me up? <laughs> There's this one point where one of the builders dies. They're talking about all the deaths that happen when you build these great engineering feats and one of the builders that dies dies because he forgets that he's in space and he burns up into the atmosphere re-entry or something like that so i don't understand why the thread doesn't do that <laughs> uh because the th because the thread isn't falling so um Oh, because it's not moving, it doesn't right. burn up? Because yeah. there's some it's, below and some above, and that was confusing. But, to but me. just un, unreeling it, right? Yeah, so it, it's like, it is like a fishing hook, right? Uh, it's like a fishing line that they build in space. They drop it down to the earth. They hook it onto the earth, right? Anchor it there. And then they got the other anchor. And so the, it, the, it's the same reason tall buildings on earth don't burn up. Right. The reason they don't burn up is because the the friction is not strong enough from the wind. Well, but they're close enough to the Earth. This was going all the way to a satellite. Yeah, but the, it's not like there's, uh, you know, uh, super, super, super strong winds. When, when you're falling uh, from outer space to the Earth, you are going really fast because you're accelerating. You're getting more and more and more. Um, that goes a lot faster through the air than does There's more friction. natural wind. Yeah, I gotcha. Thanks. I need the science. <laughs> no, no, that's not. Uh, I mean, uh, that's that's my understanding of it, anyways. Yeah, I haven't done the, the actual math, but even so, as the higher you go up, the the if the winds got stronger, they're still not getting stronger in such a way that uh, it would have that effect because the atmosphere is also thinning out. Hmm. Right. So the less wind there is, uh, in the le less atmosphere. So windstorms going 100 kilometers an hour on on Venus would be a lot worse than windstorms on Earth, and uh, windstorms on Mars would be a lot less worse at the same speed than what they are on Earth. Well, and he did spend instances. considerable time talking about the the speed that the spool would un unspool. You know, mm -hmm. I'd want unspool. Yeah, it'd take so a long I, time. Yeah. That's a, um, that's a smaller uh, mass, I guess. So, when it yeah, and also they're not they're not dropping it, right? It's not like it it's not like they're letting they're not it go down at the velocity. speed of gravity. That's right. It's it's going down at the speed they uh, actually they, they're going to have to they have to give it a push on its way out, and then they have to reel it in on the way back, right? They have to tug on it to keep it from falling, right? Because uh, yeah, it I mean. The ultimate idea of the skyhook is pretty damn cool, especially if it's untethered, right? You can imagine there's this uh, fishing line with a giant hook on the end flying across the landscape of the Earth just, you know, a couple feet above the ground. And you can, like, hey, throw clothes on it, and they can reel it up to the <laughs> space station. But <laughs> it's not practical. Better just to have, like, a, a, a conveyor belt. 
where you could put things on and take things off and have it fixed in place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that it is physically possible to build to build the one even with he he doesn't talk about carbon nanotubes, which are probably better than Buck's, Buckminster Fullerene, which is a I think it's after his time. Yeah, it's a little bit. I think they're since since uh, even the intro to this book, uh, the audiobook is 2000. I think carbon nanotubes are since then, but they're it's the same um, it's the same idea, just carbon right. in different organization. But yeah, we we we're not we still haven't built any any anything like a massive tow line. Yeah, where's my space elevator? Damn it! <laughs> on that. Well, you, know, you, you never know what's, what's, what we're going to be able to build with it, though. It's pretty amazing. Something that this reminded me of from my childhood was um, I was obsessed with Roald Dahl. Mm. And, you know, there's the one book that follows Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Doesn't it go to space? I think, I think it goes you're to right. space. I think you're right. Hey. So my first experience well, was with first. the space oh. elevator. <laughs> I never thought of that. That's true. Yeah, but there's no tether. It just goes, it just escapes the building and goes. Great. Glass elevator. Not very scientific. No. <laughs> uh, well, what year was that? That's a good question. I don't know. It's, it uh, was in the library when I was young. It's 72, so it's in the range. <laughs> it's in the range. I, I've read that, uh, and you're right. It does go to space. And no I, film has been made of this. <laughs> too unreal. Too too science fictiony. Come on, I'm not Hollywood. sure what the first book is. What is the first book? It's, it's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. No, no, no. I mean, a fantasy. What what's going on in there? It's just surreal, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it says fantasy. Kids get blown up by blueberry candy. Yeah. And wallpaper I, has flavors. <laughs> You know, it says children on the Wikipedia entry. It says children's novel is the genre for Charlie and the Chocolate Fantasy, and it says fantasy or the. Uh, I thought it was horror when I when I saw the movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It's pretty. It's got some horrific stuff in it. He's a really good writer, you know, Roald Dahl. I know. Not just for kids. I mean, just in general. I think the one that made me laugh the most when I was a kid was the BFG, the Big Friendly Giant. It's been a long time since I read that, but I, I vaguely remember recall it. I've got a whole bunch of them, and I give them to my students all the time. Mm-hmm. To me, BFG is big effing gun from Queens. yeah. That's right. <laughs> I, I did read a Jack McDivitt uh, novel where there's a skyhook that is used to rescue people. I don't know how believable that is. They're they're on they're on this planet with a bunch of killer giant crabs, and then somehow they have this skyhook that swoops down to rescue them. It's kind of cool. I had a I had a dream uh, very recently. I, maybe it was a waking dream. Whatever. Um, I had a thought the other day for a science fiction story in which uh, you, it's it's uh, set over the city of uh, Venice, uh, not Venice, um, in the shadow of Vesuvius, what's Pompeii, in 79 A.D. And there's a dude walking uh, down the streets of Pompeii, and uh, he sees something fall from the sky and hit a roof. And later that night, he, he climbs up on the roof to see what it was, and it turns out it's some object like a gun or something from our present. And 
uh, as he's up there uh, looking at it, uh, a giant uh, ladder comes out of the, a cloud above him, and a guy wants to get that thing and climb back up. And they're just observing. Uh, they're just observing the, um, the city before the end. And it doesn't really matter that uh, this guy's going to see uh, somebody from the future as much because he's going to be dead in a few <laughs> few hours from the explosion. Cheery. Yeah, cheery. But <laughs> um, if you're going to do your your non-interference, uh, what's that? What's that thing from Star Trek? The prime directive. Yeah, the non-interference right. prime directive. Um, you got to make sure the people are not going to be around to complain about uh, people from the future. I've been um, watching Doctor Who finally. Oh, great! And the original so, or the uh, new? Oh, I don't even know where the line's drawn. It's, it's. I guess it's the original, but you know, the Doctor's changed a few times, so it's. Oh, good, good. It's the one that starts with Rose. <laughs> oh, whichever no. one that okay, is. Okay, yeah, that's a bad one. It's okay. <laughs> well, I'm still liking it, but oh, there's yeah. the one where it, he is shows it with the her the. Not no, really. this is, no, this Christopher is Christopher Eccleston. Yeah. Yes, but there's the one where yeah. they go to the end of the world, the end of the Earth mm-hmm. world. That's that's straight. Oh, up. It has that woman that's like a sheet of skin. Yeah. Oh. She's yeah, the last I, I saw, human. She's got yeah. a she's got a moisturizer. <laughs> Moisturize me. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a fantasy show at this point. And that's the problem. The original, the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, <laughs> went into fantasy, but it was a science fiction show. Hmm. It was more focused on the science of things, even though, I mean, a lot of fantastic and ridiculous elements uh, were in it. They they were not... It's It's a weird combination, because it is a serial show, just like Star Trek The Next Generation, or any of the modern TV shows like 24, but because it's a new place every week, it's uh, it also has that element of of new ideas every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's an old uh, 1960s, uh, oh sorry, 1970s episode of Doctor Who in which uh, they accidentally go to another dimension uh, and they find an alternate Earth in which everybody who was you know, all the actors who are n- normally on Earth are now the bad versions of them. So it's their mirror universe one. It's called Inferno. And uh, the Earth is about to be destroyed by a giant volcano. Hmm. Everybody there is really mean. Reminds uh, me of Sliders. Yeah, <laughs> there, there was a good, a really good idea for a show. Mm-hmm. And occasionally it was okay, but mostly it was not. Uh, it's probably always okay, but it was just not great. I don't remember. Supposedly that was a ripoff of a George R. R. Martin pilot. Yeah. Uh, Doorways. This? Yeah, exactly. Oh, really? Huh. I think there's a comic book version of Doorways, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, he wrote a screenplay and then uh, or teleplay, and then somebody adapted the comic book. Yeah, I, I think that might be worth tracking down. Yeah. I think Tom Baker is coming back to Doctor Who. He's did. doing audio. He's doing audio drama. Oh, okay. I, uh, you mean the the television show? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. Well, um, you want to cut it off there? Okay. Yeah, sure. And uh, call it a show. It's a show. 
This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.